I love your pastor, and you're you're blessed. And I'm not just saying that you're blessed. I I preached at uh, Country Woods for him in Byron. I saw how everyone loved him there. Uh, I see it's obvious how you love him. A healthy church has that unity of heart between a pastor and people. So you keep that up. God's doing something. There are not a lot of places on Tuesday night you'd be nearly full for revival. So I think that God's doing a lot. But anyway, they've gone up to Green Lake, Wisconsin uh, to uh, speak uh, for their senior adult conference. And I still believe that there, if there is a revival left in America nationwide, it may begin with senior adults. And I'll tell you why. Because you carry memories and you carry convictions that are rapidly evaporating in America. So I'm optimistic. I really am. But anyway, while I was up there, here's what I heard. I heard there was an 82-year-old lady that uh, had never been on a date in her life. She lived with her daughter. And she said to her daughter one afternoon, Well, I'm going on a blind date with John David tonight. She said, Who's John David? She said, well, I don't know. It's a blind date. I've never met him before. And so she said, Mama, you don't know this man. How? She said, well, Mary Sue told me he's a good guy. And uh, she said, well, if you're 82, how old is he? She said, well, he's 85. She said, well, okay. So sure enough, a guy comes, picks her up. They go off. They come back in about two hours. And her daughter said, well, how was it? She said, it was awful. I had to slap him. She said, Mama, he wasn't trying to be inappropriate with you, was he? She said, no, he fell asleep at the table. I had to slap him to wake him up. So I'll tell you, you're awake. Uh, You guys are wide awake, and I love that. And I'm so thankful uh, to be here. I want you to think with me tonight. Uh, You ever wondered, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus asked a lot of questions, didn't he? You know? Uh, he asked, who do men say that I am? Uh, after the storm, he asked, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Um, on another occasion, he said, why are you so fearful? So Jesus, if you look through the Gospels, Jesus is going to ask at least 300 questions. Now, he didn't need, an, it wasn't because he needed an answer as if he didn't know. It was that he was pressing people to give an answer. And one of those questions he asked that I want us to explore tonight is a question found in John's Gospel, chapter 21. And uh, it has to do with one of my favorite Bible characters, and that is a guy named Simon Peter. So in John chapter 21, beginning with verse 15, let me read this. It says, when they had finished breaking, or they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And then Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. And truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This question packs a real punch for me. I, I don't know how you feel, but I have to always do the gut check and ask myself about my love relationship with Jesus. <clears throat> I mentioned to you Simon Peter, and he is one of my favorite Bible characters. And I find it interesting that Simon Peter, the first thing Jesus said to him was, follow me. The last thing Jesus really challenged him with was, follow me. And we can't really follow Jesus well unless we love him well. I love something that C.S. Lewis was fond of saying. He says, when we love Jesus best, we love one another better. And that is so true, isn't it? Well, here's Simon Peter. Let me just kind of give you a little context, a little background. Um, <clears throat> uh, Simon Peter is just rugged, rough, around the edges a little bit. I think why so many of us love him is he's, you know, he's, he's a little bit impulsive, isn't he? He does like many of us do. He, he speaks and then he thinks. And, uh, you know, he, he's just all, all out there. But then there's those sides of Simon Peter where Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan, and Jesus has to rebuke him. But the one that really sets the tone for this passage, you know what it was. It was after, after Jesus was arrested. But prior to that, what did Simon Peter said? Hey, if everyone else denies you, not me. I'll never. I mean, these other guys might whip out, but not me. And so when Jesus was arrested and he was taken, uh, John's gospel tells us that, that John went in to the priest because the priest knew John, and, and Peter followed afar off. So he comes up to this this fire pit, if you can imagine, most of the time they'd have two or three situated outside. And um, so Simon Peter comes up to kind of warm his hands, and he's standing there probably thinking, I want to eavesdrop on something that may be going on, or, or maybe John will come out and give me some information. And uh, someone says, hey, you're one of his followers, aren't you? No, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Looks like it might be a decent crop of wheat this Spring, huh? And, and, and so the conversation goes. In a minute, another guy comes up. He says, uh, hey, um, your accent, it, it's not from around here. Yeah, you're, you must be one of those followers of the Galilean. No, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then, and then that little servant girl really kind of pricks him and says, oh, you are one of those too. I, you are one of the followers. And then Simon Peter, boy, he just, reverts to the profanity and the denial and he says I tell you I never knew the man I, I don't know what in the world you're talking about and he heard the rooster crow and Jesus was walking past the little connector there beyond the interrogation room and Peter ran out and wept and so, as I've explored this passage and that question that Jesus asked, do you, do you love me? It, it, it's all connected to that denial, but there's so much more. And it's all about the grace 
of Jesus Christ that every sinner like me needs, not just daily, but every hour, every hour. And, and so consequently, here, here's what I want to speak about in regard to this question. Um, and, and that is, first of all, here's Simon Peter, and he has experienced an unforgettable failure. How would you like it if what you did against Jesus was written down and every person that would ever be alive to read the Scripture could know of that failure. Ah, boy, that's, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Um, you know, Simon Peter was the, he was the leader of the band of brothers. He was, uh, he was the point man. He was the courageous captain of the team. And, and he followed so passionately. And, and, and he declared his loyalty, but now he's, he's acted disloyal. And you got, you've got to know, boy, that must have stung. That stabbed him deeply. And can't we all flip through a, pages, a few pages of our life? And we turn those pages and we say, Lord, what was I thinking? How, how could I deny you like that? Lord, there's page after page. And I have, I have not loved you like I should. Peter's failure begs for a grace that is far greater than any of us can imagine. Uh, he needs the grace of Christ to suture those wounds in, in his life. And, and so what has happened is that in the after math of the crucifixion, you know that it was Peter that ran to the tomb with John, and, and actually Peter goes in. It's kind of characteristic of his personality, and he comes back, and then some ladies tell him, hey, uh, he, he's not in the tomb, and I'm sure Peter's mind was wondering, and, and so then what happens is uh, several days later, Peter says, hey, I, I'm going back fishing. It's interesting to me that sometimes when we're not walking in fellowship with Jesus, we default back to a way of thinking and acting as we once did. And that was what he was so familiar with. The ropes, the boats, the nets, the fish. And so he's out there. But I, I, I contend that even when he's out there fishing, I mean, it, it's swirling through his mind, don't you think? It, it, there's this... It just, you know, and to the disciples' credit, we have no record that either James or John or Thomas or any of them said, hey, Peter, man, that was, that was a really stupid thing for you to do, man. You know, not, not, none of them are pointing a finger. Why? Because they all ran in fear. And, and they were all cowards, so to speak. I was watching something not long ago about a world-class athlete, and I know some of you remember the Olympics in recent days, but... Uh, this was a world-class athlete, and uh, uh, at the time, she was trying to get into the Olympics, and she was on the uneven bars, and she was doing some, some routines, and boy, she did one of those things where you just turn, she did a face plant, I mean a face plant, and, and watching it, I go, ooh, you know, that, that, that had to hurt, and, and so she just for two or three seconds, she lay there, and then she got up, wiped her eyes, and uh, started to finish a routine, and sportscaster said, man, that was a fall from grace. I said, no, brother, that's not a fall from grace. 
That's a fall from space, but it's not a fall from grace. God's grace remains after we fall and fail. And that's the good news of the gospel. It's His grace that's greater than all of our sin. And I, I love that. Well, here's, here's another thing. Not only has Peter got this unforgettable failure he's dealing with, he's got this, uh, he's having to cope with some heavy shame, isn't he? You know, shame's a tricky thing. It kind of, uh, it kind of rumbles around in the hushed attic of the night of our minds. And uh, it's like when the accuser starts tossing around old crates of shameful memories and then opening up boxes of our past failure. That's when we have to reach for the nail-scarred hand of Jesus in those moments, you know. Because Satan is an accuser. That's what the Bible says. He's the accuser of the brethren. He will shame you every time you stump your toe if you let him. And here's Simon Peter. He's having to deal with some pretty heavy shame. And... and and when he goes back on the lake, everything starts to replay. Uh, Simon Peter gets on the lake, and I, he couldn't help but think when he's out there. I remember that storm that night. I, I was scared to death. And, and then Jesus came walking on the water. And I remember saying, Lord, if it's you, call me. I'll, I'll step out of the boat. And I'm sure the accuser said, and look what you did. Who in the world are you to be a disciple? And then I think, oh, Simon Peter probably had all kind of memories of that time that, that, that when he first met Jesus and Jesus said, hey, launch out for a big catch. And he's like, hey, you're not a fisherman. We're fishermen. Uh, we fished all night and uh, we hadn't caught a thing. And you're telling us to go back out there and cast on a different side. And Peter says, okay, okay. And then they get this great haul of fish. And, and, and so... You know, you get the sense that there's this shame that Peter's having to deal with. And, and, uh, and so uh, grace, when grace meets shame, Jesus intends for the grace to win every time. And we don't need to let shame knock us down to the ground and, and just, uh, 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 just overwhelm us. Um, and so consequently, Here's, here's Simon Peter, and he's, he's dealing with this. He's, and, and I'm sure I would have some frustration too. Um, but to his credit, he, he, he hasn't left the fellowship. He's still with the disciples. He's enjoying that time. And so he's dealing with uh, an unforgettable failure. I mean, everybody can read it, right? He's got this heavy sense of shame. You know what he needed more than anything else? He needed a healing restoration. We've all needed those. Be there any man or woman that's ever breathed that has not needed that healing restoration. And so um, when Jesus starts to walk on the beach and he's out there fishing, and, and I don't know, uh, some of you have been there um, to the Sea of Galilee and sometimes the, the mountains on the sides and how the wind can whip down and sometimes the fog will stay on it and, and maybe it was some fog or they couldn't quite tell but John could tell Jesus is on the beach and, and he calls out to him, y'all caught anything? And, and then John says, it's Jesus. Typical Peter. I mean, he just grabs whatever was in the bottom of that boat, dives in the water. He swims to shore. Jesus already prepared breakfast, is what the text tells us. And, uh, 
you sense Simon Peter just, I don't know what kind of conversation went on because the scripture doesn't tell us about before the rest of them get there. But soon enough, the rest of them start to, to come in. And, uh, and then they eat. And then Jesus has some unfinished business. He's had some unfinished business with me from time to time. I don't know about with you, but you probably had a little unfinished business with Jesus too. And so he, he says to Simon Peter, hey, Simon, you love me more than these? And, and scholars are at odds a little bit by what he meant by these. Some have said, well, what he means by these is the, the other disciples because he was bragging saying, I, I, won't, I won't deny you. I'll be loyal even if all these don't. And, and that is a very strong possibility. There are other scholars equally evangelical and conservative that will say, well, no, the these is, is he's talking about the, the fishing business, the nets, the, the boats, the, the, that's his whole livelihood. Do you love me more than all of that? I don't think we have to draw a hard and fast line either way. I think it can be both. I think it's pretty broad enough to say, he's saying, do you, do you love me all than these, all, 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 more than these? More than all this stuff, more than these guys that you said you would be loyal to me more than they would? And, and so when your pastor's probably shared this, there's a couple of Greek words in the Greek language. Well, there are actually four. But, um, the two that are used here, one is uh, from a verb, agapao, and another is from a verb, phileo. And uh, like Philadelphia uses that Greek word. Um, it, phileo is kind of brotherly affection. Hey, brother, how are you doing? It's genuine. It is not put on or anything. It's genuine. It's, it's good. It's good. Agape, agapas, as it would be there um, from the verb. It, it is a triumphant, self-sacrificing love. And so Jesus uses that that word to him said, hey, do you have that total love for me, that self-sacrificing love for me? And Peter says, Lord, uh, I have that deep brotherly affection for you. And he's honest, isn't he? And so Jesus asked him a second time. And Jesus uses that same verb, agapao, do you have that self-sacrificing, that, that, that deep abiding love? And he answers, Lord, you know I have that brotherly affectionate love. And here's the twist. When he gets to the third time, Jesus uses that phileo word. He says, I'm Peter, do you really love me with that deep affectionate brotherly kind of love? And that's when he goes, oh, the arrow pierced his heart. Because it would not be hard for him to realize three times he denied Jesus Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? And Jesus is kind of pinning him to the wall. And to his credit, Simon Peter's credit, he is very transparent. He's raw. He says, Lord, you know me. You, you know everything about me. And you know the way I love you. And Jesus didn't rebuke him. He just said to him, here's what I need you to do. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, uh, and feed my sheep. He's saying, i got a job for you. And if you let shame keep you trapped back here, you're never going to serve me like you could. 
You got, you got to close the door on yesterday, Simon Peter, and you've got to trust me. And you see, I think Jesus was giving him this healing restoration, just throwing his love all around him. And it was a moment in which Simon Peter could not trump his, uh, 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 triumphantly announce his bravado. He's saying, Lord, you know all about me, and you know I can't do this depending on me anymore. I have to depend upon you. See, new beginnings start when we're honest with ourselves and we say, Lord, I want you to take over. I need you to do everything in my life. Um, too often we, we find a way to bail out, don't we? I don't know about you, but it's, it's easy to kind of cut corners and bail out. Uh, <clears throat> there's a story um, I, I've shared and written about. And it, it occurred when I was pastoring First Baptist Church Gulfport, and I was coaching my son's little league team. And um, we, we had a, uh, it was an, well, let me just say it was an interesting thing for me, okay? Uh, kids are wonderful. Parents, not so much. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, we got our team together, and I drafted our crew. I, I didn't really know many of the boys. And so I, I drafted a kid that didn't have any legs. And another coach came up to me and said, you know, you drafted a boy that don't have any legs? I said, can you read his heart? I reckon not. Just aside, that boy hit a home run off that team before the year was over, okay? Just to say that, just clear the air there. Um, but anyway, we had a pretty scrappy little bunch. Um, and so as the first day of practice, Got them together and said, hey, I want you to warm your arms up and get loose. And, and I said, here's my philosophy. I want to play every one of you, okay? And, and, I'll, and I'll do that. I want you to enjoy the game, but I want to teach you some fundamentals of baseball. And, um, and, and, and let's, let's have fun. Let's play hard. And so they paired up. And I promise you, I, I had emptied out the balls and bats, and they'd all gotten balls, and, and they were paired up throwing. It had not been five minutes, and I hear a kid crying. And, and I looked down, and it was William. Sharon remembers, William was about 5'9 or 5'10 as a 12-year-old. He was about 165, 170 pounds. Now, he didn't have much dexterity. He's a little bit awkward, but boy, he's over there, and, and, and he's crying. And I go over to him, I said, son, what's wrong? He said, well, coach, you see that boy? I said, yeah. He said, I was, I was holding my glove right here. He threw that ball, and he hit me right here in the neck. I said, William, you move that glove over and you catch it, okay? He said, thanks, coach. I said, all right. We're going to have a long season, I can tell now. And so uh, we, I kept working with William, and uh, um, William had a habit, you ball players will know, of if you're a righty, you're going to bail out this way. You know, if you're a lefty, you're going to bail out this way. Uh, he had a phobia. And I promised him endless hamburgers and milkshakes if, if he would just stay in there, you know, and swing the bat. And, and in practice, I, you know, I'd say, look, I'm not going to hit you, I promise. And, and I would just lob it in there, and he's bailing out. And so I uh, talked to his parents, and I said, look, I love your son, and uh, I, I am concerned because in this league, there's some kids that will hit the ball pretty hard. I don't want him to get hurt. His parents were great, I promise you. They said, look, he has never played any kind of organized sport, any. He is thrilled 
She said, you ought to see him on game day. You know, uh, he, he'll put his uniform on. He'll look in the mirror. He's so proud. I said, he is a great kid. And I said, I'll tell you what, he is our best cheerleader. He, he'll cheer his head off for our team. And, you know, I said, but I, I want to play him, but I don't want to get him hurt. And she said, we don't care if he never gets up to bat. We're good with that. If you say so, we'll trust you, but we're okay if he never gets up to bat. I said, okay, great. Because he never wanted to get up to bat, and that was a good thing. Uh, <clears throat> we, we were in second place. We had no chance to overtake the number one team because they had not been beaten. But they did have a kid on that team that from the Little League distance was firing at 70 miles an hour. He had two pretty good pitches. Fastball was amazing. He had a sidearm pitch. I always hated sidearm pitchers because you think they're going to take your rib cage out on that sidearm pitch. And, and so anyway, he was good. He went on to play Division I uh, collegiate baseball. But anyway, um, we were facing them. And uh, uh, at the start of the game, Williams in the dugout, come on, team, I know we're going to beat this team 20 to nothing. I said, William, William, don't down a little bit there, boy. And so um, we, do, we, uh, we patched together a couple of runs, and, and we're tied with them two to two, last of the sixth inning, which would be last inning of the game, and uh, we get up to bat. And uh, one guy makes an out, next guy walks, next guy gets on with an error, next guy strikes out, we got two outs. We got two on. Next guy hits a pretty sharp ball to the shortstop, bounces up on him, he drops it. He doesn't have a place to throw it. So bases are loaded. Two outs. And I'm looking in the dugout. And I, there's William, hands in, in, in the wire. He says, come on, team. I said, William, uh, why don't you get a bat, son? I want you to. He said, me, coach? I said, yeah, you, you get a bat. We, I promise you, our helmets didn't fit his head. And, and so... He grabs a helmet, and even in practice, I'd see it. It looked like a billiken, kind of like, like this, you know. And, and so when he put it on his head, one of the other guys was jumping up, trying to pat it down his head, and it's making his ears stick out like this. I said, no, 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 don't do it. And so he comes over to me, and, and he just kind of held the bat on his shoulder like this. He said, what I do, coach? I said, buddy, I don't care if you strike out. I just don't want you to bail out. Can you do that? He said, I'll try I said, just, just don't bail. I, I'm good, you know. So uh, he walks up to the plate like this. And uh, that really good picture's on the mound. <laughs> and that kid's kind of grinning like, oh, yeah, who's this kid, you know. So sure enough, uh, William gets up there, and he's standing at the plate. And as soon as that little pitcher does this and starts to kick his leg, William bailing out. Umpire says, strike one, you know. Come on, William. You got. Come on, buddy. Don't bail out on me. He looks down at me at third base, coach's box, and okay, he's up there again. You know, just the worst stance you can imagine. He's like this, and uh, that pitcher does this. And he's. Fixed, I said, if he's coming here, he's coming with that fastball again. And he does this, and I said, oh boy, here goes. William bails out. You know, umpire strike two. I call timeout. I go over. I put my hands on his shoulder. Said, William, 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 listen to me. He had a phobia, and I said, look in my eyes. I don't care if you strike out. There's no shame in striking out. The shame's not in trying at all. And so, who's in, in the stands? And he looks up and he says, my Uncle Joe, my Aunt Sally, my brother, and my mama, my daddy. I said, that, that's right. What did they come to see you do? I had a coach tell me later, he said, it was a metamorphosis moment. He said, swing the bat? I said, yeah, that's what I want you to do. Swing that bat. You stay in there. 
And, and that's when it, it was amazing. It's like, click, light comes on. And so he walks up to the plate confidently, takes his foot and starts digging a place back here. And I'm like, whoa, you know. And he's getting his spot, getting his weight back, takes a bat and points to the picture and says, William, don't do that. that. That's not a good idea. You know. He does this. And, and then he's got the bat. I said, where has this been? You know, he's a big kid. He's got that bat back like this. He's wagging a little bit. And I thought, wow, you know. I said, come on, William, just swing at it, okay? And so <clears throat> this picture does this. And then I watched him drop his hand. You coaches, you know that. It's, it's going to either be a sidearm or a submarine pitch. And he starts to do this. And when he did, it just crossed my mind. Oh, dear Lord, protect William. Because <laughs> he, he, he doesn't have the, the, the ability to get out of the way. And sure enough, that sidearm pitch was coming, but it was coming high. But William, he's in concrete now. I'm telling you. Uh, you know, he's right there, and that ball's coming. So I remember saying, William, duck! That ball's coming right at him. I mean, it is coming at his jaw. And, and just at the last second, he raises his shoulder, hits him right here. Umbar says, take your base. and walked in the winning run. And so everybody just piles on top of him, you know. And they're clanging, yeah. They're just getting all over him. And he's like, yeah, man. He said, coach, I did it. I said, yeah, you did, man, you did it. It's awesome. And so you know how it is on a little league ball field. Uh, uh, I gathered everything up and uh, put all our bats and bags, uh, um, uh, balls and bats and helmets and duffel bag. And I was walking off. I was walking behind William. And he's holding his dad's hand. Uh, his mom's on the other side, little brother. And I was walking maybe five, ten yards behind him. And then I heard a voice say, hey, coach. And I looked. And it was William. He turned around and said, coach, I didn't bail out, did I? I said, no, buddy, you didn't bail out. He said, I, I really, really did it. All these years, and some days that still comes back to me, but in a different way, to hear Jesus say, hey, Dean, don't bail out on me, okay? I don't care what kind of pitches Satan throws, high and tight, sidearm, fastball, don't bail out. Don't bail out. Don't let Satan's accusations and shame overwhelm you till, till you're just petrified. And see, Simon Peter had to get to that point where he's not going to bail out. And, and Jesus is driving him to that point. And, and he realizes, hey, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, I've got a job for you to do. And I want you to do it. You go do it, okay? Now, and, and so then the, the final thing Jesus does is he... He gives him a challenge to finish faithfully. Well, I was with a group of pastors uh, not long ago, and one of them said, this is kind of one of those weird death questions. He says, how, how do you want to finish your ministry? I said, faithfully. I don't want to bail out. I don't want to quit. I, I, want, to, I want to do it for his honor and his glory. And here's Simon Peter, and Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, I, I got more for you to do than you, know, you can imagine. And so that's why Jesus kept saying to him, you know, feed, take care of my sheep. Feed them. And, and what I find so significant is when you look in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you see so many of this woven into it. When, when Peter talks about 
trials and tribulations, temptation. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, the last thing that Peter would say in recorded scripture, he says, but grow in the what? The grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was woven deep into his heart to that grace of Christ that would be so necessary for him. And, and we're forgiven for a mission that, that we need to follow Jesus with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. I don't know if some of you uh, have, have seen it, but there was a uh, potato farmer in Australia. I think if you wanted to go home tonight, you could probably find it on YouTube, uh, Cliff Young. 61 years old, decided to run in the ultra marathon from Sydney to uh, Melbourne, 544 miles. Look, I can't run four miles hardly, but, you know, 544 miles, my goodness. And so <clears throat> he signs up for it. Uh, there are, most of the runners are in their 20s. They've been sponsored by Nike, Adidas, or some of the other sports companies. He shows up in his overalls and his boots. And... Uh, <clears throat> Somebody says, who's your sponsor? He said, I didn't know I had to have a sponsor. And I said, okay. And so he's the laughing stock of, of the whole thing. And uh, he says, I, I want to run in the race. <laughs> they said, have you ever run? He said, I, I run around the ranch. We've got 2,000 acres, and I sometimes have to run my sheep and, and just herd them in when thunderstorms are coming up. I mean, it, it, was, it was almost a mockery of him. But sure enough, the moment came, gun sounded, they all took off. And Cliff Young was in dead last. <clears throat> this upper echelon of athletes in that category had a pattern, and here was a pattern. Run 18 hours, sleep six. Sounds pretty good, you know. Cliff Young didn't know that. He just ran. And so by the end of the first day, he was in dead last. End of the second day, he's about half of the pack. By the third day, he's up front. By the fifth day, he crosses the finish line two days before the record that was set. And to everyone's amazement, the Australian news at first started off like, you know, these two reporters Hey, Mary, did you hear about the old 61-year-old potato farmer? He's trying to run in the marathon. Oh, I didn't know about that. That's crazy, right? Yeah, it's crazy. He's crazy. You know, and they had cameras out there, and they were, you know, trying to make fun of him. But he crosses that finish line, and somebody said, how did you do it? He said, well, I just kept running. They said, well, but didn't it hurt you? He said, yeah, it hurt. <laughs> they said, but. I ran through the dark. That phrase caught my attention. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we have to run through the dark. When everybody else is snoozing, as followers of Christ, we run through the dark. And we just keep going and keep going and keep going. They told Cliff Young, hey, there's a, there's a, a prize. You, you get like $15,000. He said, give it to the runner-up. And like, this guy's weird. He's the weirdest guy in the world. But you know what? For me, when I heard of Cliff Young's story, I said, Lord, that's what I want to do. I, I want to get to the finish line honoring you. And Simon Peter did that. 
he got to that finish line. He was honoring Jesus. And, and the greatest thing I think any of us could ever have anyone say to us would be what Jesus would say to us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me put a ribbon on this and wrap it up. Um, I fully believe the Lord's in, the, in this place. Um, your pastor knows, preaching in different places I've preached, you can sense when the Lord's moving. And I, I don't want to disrupt anything the Holy Spirit may be doing. But could I just say to you, if the Lord presses something on your heart, and you'd like for your pastor to pray with you, come, let him pray with you. If you feel like, you know, Lord, me and you, some unfinished business, then find a place around the altar, pour your heart out before him. One of the things that a younger generation doesn't quite understand is Southern Baptists were always a people of the book and a people of the altar. We've always been that way. We get too sophisticated sometimes to think, well, yeah. But we've always been people of the book and people of the altar. So um, I, I want you to, to, to consider that. And then maybe you've realized that you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus. And maybe shame's been knocking on your door every morning you wake up and keeps hammering every night you go to sleep. And you need Jesus to wash it all away. The Bible says he removes our sins as far as the east is the west. I don't know how far that is. I can't imagine. And, and, and then it says that he removes our sins and casts them into the sea. And I said, our problem is sometimes we go back out fishing and try to dredge them up, don't we? Leave them there. Leave them there. Trust him as your Lord and your Savior. I'm going to just step back and kneel in prayer. And um, we're just going to have a moment uh, to worship, to pray, to trust the Lord, together as his people around the altar. Your pastor will be here. I'll be praying. So would you stand right now? Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Flora. If you would like more information about our church, please visit www.fbcflora.org.